you know, the biggest thing for me with this project is how do I share my story with other people? Right. You know what I mean? So I've been all over, done all sorts of stuff and I meet people, especially today's like Memorial day. Right. So like in the back of my mind, I've got all this stuff going on about people I've known and seen and the work I've done. And I always hope that someone who I would never meet would find my story right. and they'll read it and they'll be like, well, this fucker can do it. I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Um, so, so you're, you're, you're shooting for July 4th, uh, to actually publish, uh, and this is your memoir, uh, right. I guess sort of like, what? take us through it, man. What yeah. Is- um, I don't know whether to just take you through it or it's like, I've had a bunch of people read it and they have impact or like reviews of it, but the first part of it, like the very first chapter is about Afghanistan. It's like one of the worst experiences of my life. Um, I saw someone die and the reason I started off with that was because it, it's like, um, it's not the start, like it's the middle of my life, sort of this whole part, but it was such a big moment in my life. Well, sure. And this was your friend, right? This was a friend. Yeah. Someone that I worked with. Um, and I wanted the reader to be like, who the fuck is this guy? Like what's, what's going on? We're in Afghanistan. There's like bullets and people shooting and whatnot. Like what's happening here? You know? But after that, like the last part of that chapter says, how did a poor abused black kid from Philly wind up wandering around the dusty streets of Afghanistan? You know? Which, and that's a, that's an incredible story, right? It really is. You know, one of the things I try to do is tell a story of triumph, you know, there's a lot of bad things that happen, but I hope when people read it, they're like, I can do that. Yeah. I can overcome, you know? So I try not to, I have to tell the sad stories, but I hope people, that's not all they take away from it. Right. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's, you know, any, it's that conflict, right? That's what makes it interesting. It's yeah. inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so, the next few chapters are me growing up, which is terrible. (laughs) Um, And then, eventually, I I was in the Navy, then I get out of the Navy, and 9-11 happens. And that's really the watershed moment of my life. Yeah. From 9-11, for the next 13 years... I am obsessed with the Middle East. And I just tell stories like, you know, I'm in Egypt, I'm in Syria, I'm in Jordan, I'm in Yemen. You know what I mean? I I try to take the reader through the next part of my life where I'm studying Islam, I'm in the mosque, I'm fasting Ramadan, like living with fundamentalists. Yeah, so how does that come about, right? Like, you know, you're, you're this kid from Philly and all of a sudden now you're living in a mosque with fundamentalist Islamics. Yeah. Um, I was in graduate school studying Arabic and I took a summer school class. So we were in class eight hours a day. We were doing homework three or four hours at night on the phone with people like, I don't know what this means. I don't know how to do any of this. And at the end of that summer, I went into the second year Arabic and I didn't know anything. I was like, I don't know Arabic. 
how have I been spending all this time studying this damn language and I don't know anything? <laughs> and so I literally, in a moment of frustration, I went to Cairo. I hopped on a plane. I swear, man, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know who was picking me up. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Like, didn't know what I was going to be doing. I was like, I'm learning Arabic. <laughs> it it just crazy. wasn't sinking in or it just didn't, it didn't feel real? It's a really difficult language to yeah. learn. Um, it takes most people seven to ten years to get where it would take that same person two or three years in French. Okay. You know, so like I studied French in high school and college. By the time I was graduating high school, I could carry on a conversation. I could read the newspaper, like simple books, like that kind of thing. Arabic? Nope. No way. No way. Not even close. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's crazy, man. That's a, that's a huge difference. And by then, you know, I spoke French. I was pretty good in Spanish. You know, so I'd studied languages, and I felt good about it. And then Arabic just kicked my ass. Yeah. And so I up and hopped on a plane. You know, I remember talking to other, like, Arabic school students or Arabic language students at school. And they were like, you've been studying Arabic for two years. Uh, calm down. You're not going to learn it. It's okay. just fine. Yeah. So, so that was probably reassuring that like you were on the right path and yeah, yeah. I knew I wasn't behind, right? right? Like I knew I was doing well, but when nine eleven happened, I was like, I personally have to change the world. I see. Yeah. So there was there was that internal pressure. That, yeah. That you had to to learn it faster than you know <laughs> the seven or eight years that it was taking um, to be fluent. Yeah. You know. And that's one of the themes of my memoir. It's like, I'm motivated by this passion, which I can't let go of. You know, people are like, just take your time. It's fine. Don't worry about it. You'll get it. You'll get there. And I'm like, but I'm not there. Yeah. And that's really what moved me to like, uh, hop on an airplane and go to Cairo. So it's, so kind of maybe just sort of describe that passion. I mean, it doesn't sound like it's a competitive thing. It doesn't. It sounds like a, like you really do want to like you wanted to change the world. Yeah, it's a. Whenever I've had people read my book, I always ask them a question. I said, um, "What motivated me to do what I did? Do you think I'm an idiot, naive, or courageous? You know, because the things I did. I mean." Going to Cairo was the first time I really made a... It wasn't a mistake. It was the exact right thing to do. But the way I did it was... It was an impulse. It was an impulse. That's exactly right. It was impulsive. And for somebody who was in like one of the best graduate schools in the world, I shouldn't have been motivated by impulse. Right, right. I should have been like, okay, here's the school I'm going to. Here's where it's located. I need to get a SIM card. Like, I didn't have a SIM card. I didn't know about the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck it, who cares? But it worked out well. I mean, it worked out pretty great. (laughs) It it did work out. In In the grand scheme of things, it worked out because that was the first time I ever really met fundamentalists. I studied the Quran, studied Islamic law. But so in that way, it was really successful. And there's a bunch of 
pages in the book where I write about that. But in some ways, it was unsuccessful because the fundamentalists hated me. Really? Yeah. I mean, it shouldn't be surprising, right? Like, right. I'm this... But they, but they let you in. I mean, they... They didn't... let me in? Yeah. I think... And they let me in and accepted me until they realized I wasn't going to convert. Because 99% of the people who studied there, the people I studied with, were Americans or Europeans who were second generation from wherever Europe or America. That's one. And, or they were converts to Islam. Okay. And they found the school that I went to because they wanted to get more and more deep into the Quran and the religion. So I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the guys that I write about in my book, a roommate that I had, <laughs> he was like this, you know, big, jolly guy from Philly. And I'm from Philly, right? So oh, wow. immediately we hit it off, you know, like same slang, talking about the same neighborhood, so like all that kind of stuff. And the way he described himself was, you know, fairly typical for this sort of thing. And, you know, he's like, I've been a Muslim for five years. The past couple of years, I've been in the club, I've been drinking, hanging out on a block. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and he said, I left my wife and kids. I came to Egypt because I want to rededicate my life to Islam and live a proper life you know so everybody in the school had a similar story i mean maybe not from philly but had a similar story of i want to go deeper into the religion and so i was the only one there who wasn't there to become muslim you know yeah so some of the people there hadn't been muslim for very long so so when you go over there though are these people all there from before 9-11 happened? Yeah. Okay. So you were the first, like, sort of post-9-11. Um... Well, I should say that. Okay. There were people who were coming and going all the time. Okay. But there was no one who was there because of 9-11. Right. Yeah. But it did, I mean, it did fundamentally change everything, basically. It changed everything. Yeah, and that's a good point. You know, I never thought about that, but it's possible that the folks like I lived with two people it's possible that 9-11 motivated them to live a true version of Islam mm -hmm. where for me like I was trying to learn about it they were trying to live it I never thought about that yeah okay so you're there you're learning Islam they want yep. you to convert yeah when you when you kind of come out and and yeah you know you're you're, you're basically I, I'm assuming the conversation had to happen that you Finally, like, I'm not going to convert. What, right. What's changed for you? It's not a hard question, but I'm hesitating because I wanted to say everything changed. So when I first got there, people were helpful. You know, one of the guys took me out to the grocery store, showed me how to get there. You know, when you go to a foreign country, you have no idea what to do or anything, right? And so they were really helpful. When it became clear that I was not going to convert, they, you know, started yelling at me and treating me badly. 
you know, amongst themselves, they were like, you can't spend time with him. You know, within fundamentalist Islam, there's some teachings that say you can't shake hands with non-Muslims, you can't greet them with the traditional greeting. I mean, there's all sorts of things. So it, for me, it felt like a failure, you know, because I went there and I was like, I'm going to fix U.S. Middle East relations. Right. I have this passion. I want to change the world. And I can't do it. I didn't do it. Right. And so I left. And so you, you, you said it was a success. I can't remember exactly how you said it, but, you know, it was like it was a good thing. It was a success. And it was. Like, I left. And from that moment, I started memorizing the Quran. I knew a lot about um, Islamic law. I had studied Arabic. I came back, and I knew in the months that I was there, I probably advanced over a year. Of okay. learning Arabic and learning this thing that I was so passionate about it but probably the one thing that really nagged at me when I left it was that I hadn't built any meaningful relationships you know it's like relationships are really what changed the world and I didn't do that I didn't find a way to connect with them as a Muslim and a non-Muslim do you think that was going to always be impossible with that group it's one of the things I realized. Yeah. It was going to be impossible. In the book, I talk about all these little experiments that I did. Like, I tried to blend in with them as much as I could. I tried to imitate their behavior, talk like they talk, hang out where they hanged out. Um, but it didn't work. And so it felt like a failure. It wasn't, but because I was so young and so early in, in that work, in that phase of my life, it felt like a failure. Yeah. But you did achieve, you know, yeah. what you had originally set out for yeah, yeah. was yeah. to learn language. Um, so did you always feel like you, was there ever a time where you felt like you were going to be able to break in, or did you always kind of feel like the other when you were there? Yeah, so if we fast forward a little bit, so I left Egypt and when I came back from Egypt, I happened to meet someone in, in Chicago where I was studying, and he took me under his wing. He was a fundamentalist, but not like a radicalized fundamentalist. He understood all of the theology of people like Bin Laden, right? Okay. Al-Qaeda, the Taliban. Like He understood the theology, could recite it from memory, cite the Quran, you know, it's like everything. And so, again, I took off from Chicago. I went back to Egypt, and I studied with him. We, He lived in Alexandria. I'd wake up at, like, 6 or 7 in the morning. I'd go knock on his door. Um, he would yell at me all day. <laughs> <laughs> but I learned so much, and we became friends. You know, he taught me a lot, but he was also um, – very helpful you know it wasn't just like here's the book we were friends and he taught me a lot so that's one moment where I really felt like I got inside of at least the the language the theology the practice of fundamental Islam okay so that that would have barrier been, was maybe broke down a little bit the barrier was broke down in my head yeah okay. right like I studied so much. I was memorizing the Quran by that point. I was memorizing religious law. And so in the book, what I write about is how 
after that experience, there was always a fundamentalist Muslim in my head. So when I started going back to the U.S., so I would spend most of my time outside of the U.S. in the Middle East, living with fundamentalists, afraid for my life, all that. And even when I went home, I never ate with my left hand. Okay, so little right? things. Yeah. Little things. You know, when you greet someone, you put your hand on your right hand on your chest. Those things, you know, when I first went to the Middle East, I was like, oh, that's a really cute thing. Or they say this, inshallah, mashallah, you know, like, it was like, oh, that's cute. That's weird. I don't know why I do it. I'll try it. Yeah. But there came a point in my life where it was part of who I was because I spent so much time with fundamentalists, so much time, you know, like I emptied my, my iPod back in the day. <laughs> my iPod had no music on it. It was all the Quran. That's all I listened to. Okay. You know, I was constantly reading the Quran. I was in and out of the mosque. This passion that I had to fix U.S. Middle East relations overwhelmed me. I mean, it consumed everything I did. And so there was a point in time where I never became Muslim, but I it was part of who I was. Yeah. And then fast forward more, I lived in Oman, in the Persian Gulf. And there I had another person, a guy who was young and had a, a wicked good memory, right? And he taught me a lot. And when I was in Oman, I was studying at their national seminary. So I was, you know, it's a four-year school. You take your languages, classes, etc. I was, I took the freshman year classes. It was all in Arabic. I studied with these Bedouin who had never been anywhere, done anything. And I wore the traditional dress. And I, like I said earlier, fasted Ramadan. I participated in the rituals. And so when I was in Alexandria, there was a, a mental, like, in my head, I understood it all. But when I was in Oman, it became more than that. I dressed a certain way, I went to prayers, I fasted. You know, I never lied. I told people I wasn't Muslim, but they were like, we want you to experience it. Okay. You know, and so that was like what I would call like the total conversion. <laughs> <laughs> I, like I said, I, I never became Muslim, but something about me changed. Culturally. Culturally. You know. Not, not from a religious, exactly. but you took all the cultural pieces. Yeah. yeah. I mean... I could blend in, especially given my like my skin color, how tall I am, being able to speak Arabic, I could blend in almost anywhere in the Middle East. Yeah. It takes, you know, like ten or fifteen minutes, people are like, You speak Arabic, but it's different. Yeah. <laughs> you got that Billy accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is fun. Yeah. Hello, yeah, we've been talking. Great. Um let's break real quick. All right. Well, we're back for our second segment. Refreshed our drinks. Cheers. Cheers. I think the first half went well. I don't know. I mean, we'll see what yeah, post-production no, has great. to say. Yeah, no, I think it went great. <laughs> uh, that's uh, you know, a lot of good uh, good stories around sort of how you got started, uh, some a little bit of your life in, in Cairo, and then a little bit in Oman. But I, so let's kind of maybe let's back up a little bit because I had a couple questions about um, when you're in Cairo, right? And yeah. really, the, the one that comes to my mind is you're with these fundamentalists. 
They find out that you're not going to convert, and they start treating you nasty. Yeah. What do you think their intention was when you first got there? I think their intention initially was to... So, in a, like in Islamic theology, there's this idea... The word in Arabic is called du'a, and it means invite or encourage. You know, you want to... It's like in Christianity when we talk about being an evangelist or letting your light shine, drawing people to Christ. In Islam, it's a very similar thing. It's called du'a. And I think initially they thought, if we live our genuine, true Muslim life, this person who came to this place where everyone is a fundamentalist Muslim will see the value of our life and how we live, and he'll want to live that way. And so I think the real reaction was, he's rejecting our lifestyle. Okay. You know, and so... Do you think they wanted to almost like um, turn you into an advocate when you went did the, do you think that they expected you to stay there forever I guess is the first question in my heart they would have expected me to be so transformed by how they live their lives that I would never be able to say no to living like them so stay there forever no I don't think physically they wanted that thought I would stay there forever no one did lots of people just stayed there for a month but they would have expected me to adopt their way of life. Okay. Um, and I didn't do that. Did most people end up converting? Everybody who was there was a recent convert or somebody who was um, rededicating their life to Islam. I so I was the only non-Muslim okay. there. There were no other non-Muslims. Okay. And it so was a way... Do you, think that they, do you think they were kind of... a, a offended by that yeah okay yeah it offended their way of life and you were there you were there mostly almost from an academic yeah perspective totally academic yeah and i believe that if i show genuine interest and commitment to understanding them like reaching out to them and saying i respect you i value your perspective on the universe that they would say okay Alex and I do not agree. We'll never agree. But he respects our life, and so we can create a, a different kind of relationship. And that never happened. I see. Okay. And that's why it felt like a failure to me. Right. Right. But, I mean, that's that's a, that's a pretty high bar to set to, to fix yeah. U.S. and Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> I, I told you, my whole life was consumed by saving the world yeah. <laughs> and it always has been okay perfect so okay so let's sort of jump back to where we were you're in oman now yeah and and you're kind of being taken into the culture you're, you're feeling right. like you're you're being accepted in although you're still definitely foreign right um, well maybe talk about a bit more about that experience of, of what was going on in your life and, and some of your motivations and, yeah. and also how the people were treating you you know in sort of this like uh post 9-11 world where yeah. they still know that you're a foreigner. Right. So I really focused on my friend who took me under his wing and, you know, he took me to his hometown. I met his family. He introduced me to his fiance, like an arranged man, his cousin. Right? <laughs> it was his cousin, but, you know. Um, but we spent all our time together. I always spoke Arabic and he always spoke English because okay. he was trying to learn English. I was trying to learn Arabic. 
and it felt like I said, it was the completion of my adoption of sort of a fundamentalist, like really strict Muslim outlook on life. In Egypt, I learned to think like a fundamentalist, and in Oman, I learned to live like one. But that was just one person. Everybody else hated me. <laughs> in Oman, too. In Oman, too. Yeah. Why, yeah. why do you think that is? Same exact reason. I mean... Like I said, I was in the freshman classes, right? So we it was like a one-room schoolhouse. We sat in the same room. The teachers came in and out, and our topics were history, Islamic theology, the Quran, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, these were 18-year-old Bedouin who'd never been, in, literally never been anywhere and done anything, you know, lived in the desert, like literally in the desert. They never met anybody who was not Omani, who didn't speak Arabic, God forbid they were non-Muslim. Mm -hmm. America was, especially at that point, that was in 2005, you know, is the bogeyman for the entire Middle East. Yeah, okay. Right? So, so did so, you say you were Canadian when you were over there? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually one of the principles that I lived by. The whole time I was in the Middle East, especially as a student studying by myself, I never lied about who I was. Yeah. And... I should have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you know, I can only imagine how how uh, maybe isolating that would be. Yeah, you know, tons of people put Canadian flags on their backpacks, or hid their passports when they were in public. But because my passion was solving right. U.S. Middle East policy, I felt like I had to stand out as an American. I had to figure out how to solve this riddle. And if I lied, I wasn't going to solve the riddle. And by God, I should have lied. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we should probably clarify, too, at this point in your life, you are you really are only there on like an academic capacity. Yeah. You're a civilian. Yeah, You're yeah. not involved with uh, you know the, the government in any way yeah. at this point. Yeah, I wasn't involved with the military. And the interesting thing is that like I said, I feel like Oman was the the completion of my indoctrination <laughs> into like fundamentalist Islam, and it was not but three or four months later that I got an email from the government saying we want people who are PhD level, PhD level academics who speak Arabic or some other Middle Eastern language have traveled in the region, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I was like, uh, that's me. So how did that come about? It was just a random email. Really? So, I mean, surely they had to know that you were over there or no. So let me give you, it wasn't the actual government. Okay. So it was from a consulting firm called BAE. They're the ones who make, I don't know if I'm supposed to mention the real company names, but we can do that in post- Wait, prod. We can. Whatever. Yeah, we can. Uh, <laughs> um, so it was a consulting firm. They were hiring people to be civilians to go to the Middle East. I see. And so I got this email. They're like, "Yeah, we want PhD level Arabic speaking, traveled in the Middle East, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And I was so convinced it was a fake email. I called all my friends. I was like, you're a fucking asshole. You know this is the work I want to do. You know I want to go help the government and solve U.S. policy, etc. I can't believe you would do that. And I was in the middle of studying for my Ph.D. exams, which are really difficult. So, 
you know, you take an entire year, you hide out in the library, you're, all you do is study. And I figured my friends were pissed off that I wasn't out partying and having a good time, etc. <laughs> so I start calling people, literally, like, down the line, and they're all like, I have no idea what you're talking about. People hanging up on me. You're a fucking asshole. I can't believe you're saying this. <laughs> um, That's nuts. Wow. It is crazy. And so I get this email, and... So how I, do they find you, then? I mean, were they with the school, maybe? That's a good point. I don't... There was no LinkedIn back then. Right. I don't know how they found me. <laughs> I've not thought about that. Okay. I mean, surely, maybe with the school, you know, there's not that there's many... T- yeah, it's, it's, it's not the craziest idea in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I was in school. I was traveling all over. Yeah. I don't know how they found me, but it's probably not the craziest thing in the world. So they send you the email. You yeah. call your friends, and, they, and you realize that this is actually legit. This is legit. So I called the guy back, and he's saying everything I want to hear. He's like, we need people to go to the middle of the worst places in the world and do the worst things possible. You know, live in places where there's no running water and no hot food, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, yeah, I'll go. <laughs> Let's do this. When do I go? <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> that, and, you know, it really, the, the connection here is important. I was in Egypt, and I had this intellectual transformation where I understood fundamentalist Islam. I was in Oman, where I had this lived experience. I lived the life of a fundamentalist Muslim. And then a few months later, I got the call. It felt like, you know, the superhero agency. I don't know what they're called. But shield. Like the Shield or, yeah. or uh, the Justice League, whatever, Avenge, whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I feel like I got the call. And I was ready for the call. Yeah, if I, I had gotten that. the call a year before, God forbid, two years before, I wouldn't have been ready. Right. And so I signed up. I was... Um, you know, the major parts of getting your PhD is you take your classes, you take your exams, which are really difficult, and then you write your dissertation. So I was just ready to take my exams, and I said, I'm going to take my exams, and then I'm going to go, and I'll figure out the dissertation letter later. You know, and it was like, my whole life dream up to that point had been to get my PhD, and I was putting it on hold. I see. For my greatest dream, hope, passion, the thing I wanted more than anything was to fix U.S. Middle Eastern policy. So, but this is again, this is still this is not with the government. This is through a consulting firm that probably has contracts with the government, but it's they not have contracts um, with the United States government. So by that point, I was. What the job was, was to go live on a military base in Fallujah in Iraq and work with the military. Okay. So at that point, you know, it was the whole thing. I was in the intelligence community. I had a security clearance. I had an equivalent um, government rank. So by that point, so by 2008, I was working with the government. Once you get that job with this consulting firm, they give you the, the clearance. They put you... Yep. Okay. But before yeah. all that, you know, you're only in Oman and in the Middle East, 
because you just want to learn. Yes. Yep. Okay. And because of that learning, the curiosity that I had, it prepared me for the next phase of my life. Right. And that's really the next big phase. You know, I spent a year in Iraq. And the best thing about Iraq was that I created this religious leader program there. So my PhD is in religious studies. I spent all my time studying Islam and the Quran, Islamic law, etc. And other religions too. And other religions, right? And history and political theory, etc. Studying all sorts of things. I studied. Time, you spent time in a, in a convent and a, a monastery. monastery. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I spent time in a monastery when I was younger. Um, yeah. I mean, the thread through all of it is this passionate curiosity. Right. If something tickled my fancy, I went and did it. Right. And I feel really lucky that I chased every dream I ever had. That's you awesome. Know? It is really awesome. It eliminates the need for regret in a lot of ways. Right. And so... So you're in Iraq. I'm in Iraq, and one of the first things I realize is that the military leaders believe that Iraqi religious leaders are causing all the trouble. So much so that the generals have said the Marine Corps is not allowed to go to a mosque, they're not allowed to talk to imams or religious leaders. So the core of the religion, you know, the thing driving how people think about how they should live the United States is not engaging at all. And I said, uh, this is fucked up. <laughs> I was like, this is not right. But I couldn't just, you know, go to the generals, the colonels, be an academic and say, oh, well, if you just read this book and just think about this theory, you know what I mean? Like, they're not going to buy it. I'm imagining the scientists in every uh, disaster movie. Yeah. That everyone just exactly. <laughs> exactly. Until it's like just the right time. They're like, oh, this jackass over here has been talking about that for the past 30 minutes of the movie. <laughs> so I devised this plan to do a, like a detailed theoretical study of religious leaders in Fallujah. And it worked. I mean, shockingly, it worked. Um, all of the leader, all the military leaders got on board. I presented my research. It was, you know, well done, of course, because I'm amazing. <laughs> and this is this is about 2008, you said? Yeah, this is 2008. Okay. Yep. So, uh, uh, so was the, like, before this study ever gets off the ground, was the feeling sort of, it had to be very adversarial. I would yeah, think. it and was now, very. Are they starting to, okay, now we need to start fixing the problem, or am I sort of misinterpreting? The, no, the you're problem? right. You know, when I found out that I was going to Fallujah, I was mortified. I mean, I wasn't just scared. I was mortified. You know, there's one of the most famous images from the Iraq war is those four Blackwater contractors hanging from the bridge, you know. And Fallujah just had a terrible reputation. It was significantly more dangerous before I got there. But it was dangerous when I got there. Yeah. Um, and so, so, so it, it had cleared up a bit. They, they, yeah. They, 
So are they still... There's still a combat, though, when you're there. Yeah, yeah, there's still combat. I mean, um, yeah. Lots of bad stuff happened there. Um, you know, one of the things in my book, I try not to fetishize war. A lot of times when people talk about or write about war, they focus on, like, how many bullets were shot or... They're like, I dodged this, or I got away from this, or um, it's, and I try not to write about it in that way. I really try to focus on, I don't know, what I would call something like transformation. Like, how are we, all of us, trying to change the world, and what impact did it have? There's probably about five or six pages in the book where I talk about uh, two of the worst days of my life. Um, but I try not to like dwell on that. Sure. Um, but yeah, so there was tons of bad stuff going on when I was there. But this research that I did opened the minds of Iraqis and our military leaders to think about different ways to engage. You know, and I felt great because I was studying religion and I felt like I was doing the thing that I had been. If the years beforehand, when I was by myself, not with the government and it's all, if those felt like preparation, mm-hmm. Iraq felt like running the race, right? Like doing the thing that I was born to do. The thing that happened on 9 11 when something was awakened inside of me. Iraq, I was doing it. So, Fallujah in particular was considered the hotbed of the insurgency. The city was walled off um, by the Marines to limit traffic in and out. There were snipers everywhere, etc. So, my mission as an anthropologist there, uh, one of the funny ways I say it is, you know, my job was to get Marines to shoot fewer bullets and create more relationships. Okay. I was at very quickly. Marines love shooting bullets. <laughs> <laughs> there was no way I was going to stop them, right? Yeah. It was never going to be zero. But I always felt like my mission was to say, if I can give you the tools you need, in those two or three seconds that you have to make a decision to interpret a situation better, right? Like you have the tools to think about what's happening and you say, this is not an actual threat. It looks like a threat, but it's not an actual threat. And I'll give you an example. I was uh, sitting in Baghdad International Airport with me and my team. If, you know, anybody's ever waited for an, a flight out of Baghdad, um, it, take, it can take days. Sometimes it can take days. You just sit there on the flight line and you're like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? I can't go anywhere. You go to the chow hall, you come back. The guy's like, no, you can't fly, blah, blah. So we're sitting there. It's like the middle of the night and this gaggle of dirty, like salty Marines hops up and they start pointing at me and my team. And I'm like, oh, shit, what the fuck's going on here? Like, who do we piss off? And they're like, make a beeline towards us. My whole team sees us. Like, um, 
bunch of guys on the team were like former special forces, etc. So they like they see the threat and they're like, "Oh God, what's happening right now?" So, so real quick, this is yeah. a team of, of special forces. These are these are combat operatives, or these are scientists, or who makes up your team at this? Yeah, point? at that point on my team, we had like a couple of PhD types, academic types. We had a couple of interpreter we had types. We had a couple of senior military and then operator types. Okay. We were not, as a team. We were not operators. Like we didn't carry guns or anything like that. Sure. But on our team, we always had like former operators, and their role was to help us um, connect with the military, get into the communities that we needed to think about and deal with risk as it came up wherever we were, you know. Especially with special forces, they really specialize in uh, developing relationships, helping indigenous communities uh, rebuild, etc. So, so that was my team. And it's, like, it's primarily a humanitarian team. Primary, yeah. We, we were called the okay, yeah. Right. It was called the human terrain team. Okay. So we studied the human terrain. <laughs> okay. So yeah, we're sitting in Baia, ba- uh, Baghdad International Airport. And this, like I said, ragtag group of Marines hops up. And it's, without a doubt, one of the proudest moments of my life. And they come up and they're like, hey, you're Mr. Thompson, right? And I'm like, yeah, bowing my chest. I'm like standing up. I'm like, yeah. yeah Maybe a little scared. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little scared. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, yeah, we remember you were in our OP four weeks ago or eight weeks ago like an outpost some little base in the middle of nowhere like i said no running water no access to anything no internet no nothing all they did was go on patrols and they went to sleep and they ate their meals out of a bag and they shit in a bag and it's like it's a really rough life right but when i was in iraq as part of my self-appointed mission i went everywhere i could and i talked about religion i talked about history i talked about iraq i taught people arabic like i would go anywhere they were like will you go here i was like i'll go (laughs) you know like everywhere and so these guys were at biop and they're like yeah you're mr thompson i remember you and i was like what's going on here (laughs) and they're like you were in our op whatever it was however many weeks ago and you were talking to us about the Quran and gender relationships in Islam and the history of Iraq, etc. You know, and they were like, we kind of didn't know what to think about it. But as we started going on patrol and talking to the Iraqis in our neighborhood, it really started to click. You know, the things that we used to look at and be like, oh, that's fucked up. I can't believe they do that. Why do they live this way? Why does this happen? I don't wow. understand this. What's going on? I mean, that's absolutely incredible. Wow. It was an incredible moment because I remember those guys after we started talking and they described to me, they gave me the name and I was like, I remembered them and their squad leader had like funneled them. The various squad leaders, the platoon, they were sitting in this room. Half of them were asleep. A bunch of them were cleaning their rifles. The other ones are like, I'm like, I have no idea whether they're listening or at all, but I don't care. Right. I'm like, this is my mission in life. And it took weeks later before. Um, 
I realized realize how important it was. Yeah, I mean, you probably saved lives. I mean, these guys have a little bit more exactly experience. They know innocent lives. Really. Yes. Yeah, and that's and that's what I was saying. It was like, if I can give you the tools you need in the two or three seconds that you have to decide whether it's my life or someone else's life, that's what I want to do. Yeah, it was powerful. That's I mean, incredible. I can't overemphasize how important it was for me to live out my mission. Right. And, you know, in my book, I talk so much about heroes. And we learn about heroes from the time we're kids. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't have any heroes. And there came a point where I had to say, I'll be my own hero. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's yeah i mean that's that's awesome that's that's a really powerful statement right and i got to live it out yeah you know i get to and you got to, to have it validated by these guys exactly that's incredible yeah there's something really important for me anyway especially how i grew up about um actually so not just saying you know, sometimes people say things about who they are or who they want to be. But for me to know that I lived the life of this kind of hero, not like a fantastical hero with a cape or or not even that I actually, uh, I don't know. It was just so, it was all self-determined, right? Exactly. It was, you, you had a purpose and you were able to live out that purpose and then have that purpose validated by, these random, these random yeah. Marines who, who maybe didn't pull a trigger on somebody who didn't necessarily. Maybe. And I didn't know it when I was preparing. I didn't know when I was talking to them. Right. But I had to persevere because I believed in the mission that I had for me. But if I waited for someone, if I waited for someone to tell me how I should live my life and what I should be doing, if I listened to the brothers at the madrasa or the institute in cairo if i listened to my stepdad when i was a kid if i listened to so many people i would have never lived that reality i would have never done the thing that i wanted to do (laughs) that's amazing amazing. so yeah you know i spent a year in iraq and at this point it kind of sounds like maybe you know, there's still there's still definitely flare ups. There's still combat, uh, but it sounds like maybe the initial dust has settled a bit. And yeah. Now, now the United States is trying to rebuild and exactly. really understand how exactly to move forward. Exactly. And you know, at the towards the end of my year in Iraq, I wanted something else, so. I got a job offer as a civilian again, not as a government person, um, to work with General Petraeus. Oh, wow. Yeah. In Tampa, Florida at CENTCOM. It was when he was the commander of CENTCOM. Okay. And so, based on my experience in Oman, I was hired as a Persian Gulf expert. You know, it didn't hurt that I was uh, in Iraq. I had just come from Iraq. Leading a team. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so... um, I spent about six months there um, being an advisor before, like, that 
by this point in my life, I became, in my head at least, an operator. I was so used to being on the front lines. Like I said, I would go anywhere and everywhere. They're like, it's really dangerous. I don't care. I'll go. So when I went to CENTCOM Tampa, it was really exciting. I didn't work one-on-one with General Petraeus, but I presented to him weekly in most cases. You know, But it still didn't fill that passion. Right. It wasn't maybe as close? Or... It wasn't as close to the front lines. Yeah. I wasn't. I didn't have Marines running up to me who had, you know, the Marines who came up to me at Biop, they were living life and death at every moment. Right. You know, and, and so it, it means more when people like that say, your nerdiness about <laughs> medieval Islamic theology changed my life. That's more meaningful. You know, than publishing an article and people say, oh, it was written really well. Right. Or even having someone like General Petraeus say, I hadn't thought about that or I hadn't read that or I didn't see it in that way. Obviously, there's value there and you, you feel good about that. But the Marines that buy out. Uh, oh, it's right in your face. It's right in your face. It's life changing. I mean, yeah. It's For me, at death. that yeah. yeah, at that point in my life, that's all I cared about. So... I went to Afghanistan. <laughs> so, so this is, you know, you're working for General Petraeus about six months in, in Tampa, yeah. and this is what, like 2008, 2009? 2009, 2010, okay. yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then so I go to Afghanistan in 2010, um, and the job there, again, was as a consultant. Um, I worked for the U.S. Agency for International Development, which meant that I carried a bag of cash and I was able to go into various communities in southern Afghanistan and Kandahar and Helmand province and help them rebuild and that's the that's sort of the policy that's US policy at this time is yeah it's time to rebuild and we need to, we need the right people who are smart enough to know how to do that and who know the area so I talked a lot about learning Arabic but I also learned uh, Farsi which is the primary language in, in Iran, and then there's a version of it in Afghanistan. So when I was in Afghanistan, I didn't speak Arabic, I spoke Farsi. Okay. Um, and Farsi is close to the language they speak in Afghanistan, which is Dari, in addition to Pashtun, but that's a lot of detail. We can go into that <laughs> later. <laughs> so maybe it is important, though, because like, there are differences between language. You know, yeah. It, it, you know, the Russians and... They have differences between, yep. uh, you know, the Serbian language. Yep. Um, what do you think is sort of the, the critical differences between those different languages? What I would say is that my ability to communicate in Farsi, which is like bad Dari, um, helped me develop relationships, which was the key thing that mattered to me. I never believed that spending money was going to solve problems. You know, we built schools and fixed roads, municipal buildings, et cetera, et cetera, right? It helped women build vocational centers so they could make their products and sell them. So we did lots of stuff by spending money, but it was never the money, right? The money was right. never the thing that was going to f- fix. You couldn't just keep throwing it at the problem. You can't, ju- you, you can't print enough money to, to fix the problem. I see. The real solution is 
and this is where I've come to, is about relationships. And the United States' ability to genuinely engage, whether they're Afghans or Iraqis, um, those environments. And, you know, it, it takes a lot of time and effort. It does take money, but money is not the solution. So, do you think there was a, a differing in philosophies, I guess? So, so you, the United States government is giving you money to spend. Yeah. Do you think that they were appreciating that, that your perspective is like, we can't just throw money at this problem. Right. And so then their response was, okay, well, here's some money. You tell us how to spend it, or yeah. or was it really that they, they just kind of felt like, let's just rebuild, let's just spend money at the problem, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of pick up the pieces as we go? Yeah, that's probably why I didn't stay in Afghanistan as long as I stayed in Iraq. So I worked for a civilian company called DAI, and... Our perspective on how to solve things was different. I was like, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to get to know people. I'm going to build relationships. And if it takes me three years to spend this money, it takes me three years. Because at the end of that three years, I'll have built relationships. We'll have talked about the mission. We'll have talked about the U.S.'s goals. And the best way for us as a team to rebuild, right? Um, and that just wasn't the same perspective. So, and so that was not the same perspective from the U.S. military. Yeah, that was um, that was sort of your guys's perspective was you know we need to spend time on this, but the U.S. military is kind of like okay cool we'll take this money and, and fix it now. Or yeah. do you feel like you guys were sort of aligned? <clears throat> I guess what was the expe- what was the timeline expectation from both sides of like when is yeah because you know this is two thousand nine two thousand ten the war's been right. going on for a long time yeah and and you know I think it was a <clears throat> it was an important inflection point where this counterinsurgency theory was really hitting in Afghanistan and the idea was if you read the counterinsurgency manual it's all about relationships so I think we were transitioning I mean it wasn't it wasn't the change right but we were in this moment where it's like how do we involve ourselves in less combat and more reconstruction development I see moving Afghan civilization further and in some ways you know we have a lot of burden to carry for the destruction of the society you know, and so how do we help undo if we can what we've done? Right. So I think it was a couple things. <clears throat> there were another worst days of my life in Afghanistan. And so when I left, I didn't know it, but I was being at war for even that short a period of time had changed me. And so I was ready to, to move on. Right. And so after that, I 
came back to the U.S. and came back to the U.S. Sorry, and um, looked for jobs in the U.S. So the next job I had was training senior military leaders um, who were getting ready to deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan, helping them prepare because I'd been in both places. And then after that, I went to uh, the Army's version of a think tank. And again, it was a great opportunity for me to take my experiences in Iraq, Afghanistan, and also having spent time as a student by myself, various places in the Middle East like Egypt and Oman, and help senior military officials and political officials draft foreign policy. So, yeah, so this it is, was really exciting. So this is sort of the, the, the third phase of your life, so to speak. You've had you know, your first phase where you're, you're basically learning. You're, you're energized, you're passionate, and you're, you're working on your, your PhD as well as um, you're wanting to learn the language, you're wanting to learn right. the culture. And then phase two is sort of you've been called by the agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to be the superhero <laughs> to help, help, yeah. help fix the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, and now you're sort of phasing into this, this third phase of you're the expert. You've been there. You've been boots on the ground. You've been yep. with these guys. Uh, and, and you've been teaching these guys. And now it's time to translate that knowledge into um, – policy basically yeah exactly american policy exactly Um, you know and if i talked about fixing u.s middle east policy this is the phase where i got to do it in my own way this think tank we worked with generals all over the world so we worked with um the command in afghanistan so the all the four starter and three-star generals we worked with them we also worked with Congress, so we helped draft testimony and gave input for bills that were put forward. So, again, this is another phase where I'm like really living my dream. I'm getting to do the thing that I dreamed about since 9-11. You know, and it was tremendous. Yeah. Possibly. Let's take a quick break. Yep. Okay, we're picking up the recording now. This is phase three of sort of Alex's uh, journey in life. And All right, so we're up. back. We're back. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I mean, we've gotten through, what do we say, the three phases, right? So I was in D.C. Um, honestly, really helping write U.S. policy in the Middle East. It was another phase of my life, which was... I'm getting to do what I get to do, right. or what I've wanted to do, you know. And prior prior to this, you had sort of a, a bag of money that yeah. uh, the government said, you know, take this money, fix fix all the world's problems. <laughs> <laughs> but now we want you, we want you here in D.C. helping us write policy. Yeah, so tell yeah, us more about that. Yeah, it was a great job. Um, one of the highlights was after having worked in religious leader engagement in Iraq. And then I did some of the similar work in Afghanistan. When I was in D.C., I wrote a paper about it, and it was published in one of the leading military journals in the U.S., right, the Joint Force Quarterly. And so it felt like I was bringing together that operator side of me, like I was on the front lines, boots on the same, 
what does it say? Boots on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the drinks are getting to me. <laughs> and this is like what, like 2011, 2012? Uh, yeah, this was 2011. Yeah. Okay. I'm always fuzzy about the years, which is doesn't make any sense. But yeah, it's like 2011. And I get to publish this paper in a journal that I read and I sort of looked up to and I was like, holy shit, I'm getting published in this journal. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I got to talk about the work that I did and that other people did trying to bring um, religion to the minds of military leaders. Right. And so, like I said, when I was in Iraq, military leaders said, religion's bad. Don't talk to religious leaders. Don't go into the mosque. And I was like, nah, that's not right. Right. <laughs> so, to fix the problem, you have to understand it. Exactly. And religion is so important in the Middle East. It's important in all parts of the world, to be honest. But um, it has an especially important role in the life of politics in the Middle East, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, When do you think that uh, the U.S. military leadership started to value that or that, or that mind shift shifted from this is the enemy versus this is who we have. These are our influencers. I think there were a few people doing very similar work around the same time. And I happened to be one of those people. You know, there's a story that Leibniz and Pascal both discovered or created calculus at the same time, right. but they didn't know each other. Right. right? A zeitgeist. A zeitgeist, exactly. Right. And so I think there were just people. And we all came into this environment and we said, I don't think we're doing this right. How can we do this differently? So in my research for this paper that I wrote for Joint Force Quarterly, I found other people who were doing something similar. Some other person was doing something in the same way. So it just, yeah, I mean, I think zeitgeist is the right term, right? It just, it, it got into people's minds and their spirits, geist. Um, and we all started working towards something. And so I was able to organize a conference actually with this think tank I was working with and we brought together some of these people we brought together leading academic scholars politicians military leaders and we started talking about all these various people who were thinking about how to engage religious leaders and leverage our understanding of religion in the war on terror so-called war on terror right so it was a really Again, another period of my life when this passion that I had inside of me, I got to live it. Do you think that's maybe, so you, you know, you're kind of in this phase of, of rebuilding the world. Do you think you, uh, at this point, there's a some breathing room, right? It's not yeah, the immediate right, threat. Right. And, you know, now it's time to start thinking about fixing the problem. And you were really, really kind of instrumental in, in fixing that problem at this point. Which you know, is what you wanted. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to oversell it. I mean, I think there were lots of people who were doing more important things than I was doing. But I was doing the things that I thought were important. I was changing the world in the way that I thought about changing the world. Right. And so um, it was really pivotal. You know, but, you know, you talked about changing and and this is the period of my life when i started to realize that i wasn't focused on myself by now we're talking about 2011 we're getting into 2012 
I became obsessed with the Middle East in 2001. Right. So for 11 years, if it didn't have to do with the Middle East, I didn't care about it. I didn't have relationships. I lost touch with my family, my friends. I was in and out of school. I was all over the place. I was constantly moving. If, Like I said, if I wasn't in the Middle East, I was planning to go to the Middle East. And so I, I didn't go into detail, but, you know, in Iraq, there were several bad days. In Afghanistan, there were bad days. Even when I was traveling as a student, there were times when I wasn't sure I was going to get out of a tough spot. Right. And so when I – and you – you phrased it really well. I can't remember right now, but there was like breathing room. And it was breathing room for my psyche to start to process those bad days. Yeah. So what did I do? I went to go be a volunteer fireman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm not a combat. I'm not getting shot at or blown up. You know, I'm not living on shitty bases in the middle of nowhere with no running water. So I've got to create the adrenaline and the tough life, right? My life's too good, so I'm going to make it a little harder. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Yeah, so I became a volunteer fireman just outside D.C. in Northern Virginia. And, you know, ran into burning buildings, saw more dead bodies, and helped more people who were having the worst days of their lives. Yeah. You know, because by that point, you know, one of the things I used to say was that I was addicted to war. I was addicted to combat, you know, and being a fireman helped me tamp down, however you want to call it, like the beast inside of me, that energy that I couldn't control, that nothing could really control. And so if I wasn't at the think tank, like helping rewrite U.S. policy, I was barreling down the highway on a tower ladder or a fire engine or a medic and going to save people's lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's – I don't think that's unique though, right? Like I think that they're – you know, that's kind of the premise of the movie Hurt Locker, right, is this addiction to war, addiction yeah. to combat, addiction to action. And yeah. it sounds like you're kind of echoing that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think – so that was the first time I really tried to quote unquote settle down. Mm-hmm. You know, for 11, 12 years, I'd sacrificed my life. The things that normal people do in their, what, 30s, you know, mid to late 30s. Um, I sacrificed all that for this mission that I had put on myself. And when I left Afghanistan and then eventually moved to. DC I thought that was it you know I was like I'm gonna live a normal life then I became a fireman and then someone said hey do you want to go to Central and Eastern Africa and I was like yeah why not yeah wow that's (laughs) (laughs) you know I couldn't so so was that part of the quote-unquote the war effort then when you went to Africa okay yeah yeah so there's a that's definitely an area of the world that doesn't necessarily get up um, acknowledged as part of the sort of Iraq Afghanistan war yeah. post 9-11 but, but there yeah. is there is combat there is yeah. there is a lot going on especially right. with um, you know just not necessarily the same thing 
but sure. a lot of a lot of combat. Yeah, it's not like traditional gun on gun uh, type of violence that we think of. But actually, my time in in Africa was it's like I can actually talk less about what I did there or where I was or who I was with because so few people knew about it. It's almost like a proxy war in a way. Or is that is that unfair? Let me think about that for a second. Um, I'm not sure if I would call it a proxy war, but I would call it sort of like an invisible war. I see. You know, there's just so many places, you know, I was probably... So, like, when I talk about Afghanistan and Iraq, um, I can be like, oh, yeah, I was in Fallujah, I was in Al-Assad, I was in Kandahar, I was in Lashkargah. But when I talk about Africa... I sort of hesitate and I pause and I'm like, I don't think that base is declassified anymore. Right. It's a more complex situation. It's it's significantly more complex. And, you know, I worked with special forces there, right? So the special forces mission is by definition classified, you know? So um, I spent a few months there. The company I was working for at that time sent me to Bahrain, Okay. In the Persian Gulf. <laughs> That's always an interesting story. In my book, I talk about the moment that they tell me I have to move. And I'm sitting on this base literally in the middle of nowhere in a jungle. I've had to fly from the capital city to a minor city, hop into a boat plane. I don't even know what they're called. <laughs> <laughs> They, like, drop me off on this pier, and they're like, get in this boat plane. Like, is it a plane, or is it a boat? I'm imagining like, the things that you take in, in New Orleans, the little uh, the van boats. Yeah, yeah. Not the same thing. Not the same thing. Um, so I get in this boat, and they take me, and they fly me somewhere. We land on the, in the middle of the water somewhere else. And I get on this pier, and then I hop in a Jeep, and I'm driving for hours. And they're like... Welcome to this U.S. base in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, holy shit, where the fuck am I? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So so I get this email from my company again. I'm working for one of these um, consulting firms. And they're like, we've had a shakeup. You have to go to Bahrain. And uh, it's the middle of the night. Of course, they have no idea and don't care where I'm at, et cetera. Yeah. And I'm like, it's going to take me weeks to get from where I am to the capital city of the country. And then I have to go, you know, it's like, I can't get there right now. So anyway, um, it was a great time being in Africa. You know, the I can talk about the, the main base. Um, it's in Djibouti in East Africa. And it's um, when it's not a country at war, it's it's there's a lot of things. I almost said it was a beautiful country. And it it is in some ways, but it's the hottest place I've ever been in my life. It was <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It, it's, yeah, if it's too hot, then uh, it may be gorgeous. But if it's too yeah, hot, it just it, it runs. It's over. right on the water, and it's a former French colony. So some of the best steak I've ever had, the best French food I've ever had. I mean, just really good food. Great nightlife. Like we could go out, etc. It was just so hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of spoils everything. It spoils just... everything. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I had to, like, in the dark of night, fl- move everything I have, 
go to DC for like two or three weeks to get a visa and then go to Bahrain. Okay. And, and Bahrain was it, it was a lap of luxury. You know, I, I made a joke about shitting in bags, but when I was in Iraq, I spent a lot of my time living on bases with no running water. So, you know, they're called wag bags. You know, there are no toilets. There's no nothing. There's no running water. When I was in Afghanistan, we didn't have showers. We didn't have a chow hall. All our meals were in bags. You know, it's like, we, it was just, it was nothing. So when I went to Bahrain, it was like the lap of luxury. I had my own apartment. I lived out in town. My apartment building had a rooftop pool. Um, I played rugby with the the expats, the the, lo- the locals and the expats there. This was your first introduction to rugby? No, I, I had played rugby before. Okay. We didn't talk about that, but um, I had played rugby before. Um, but when I was in Bahrain, I was just um, I was living the life. But I talked about how when I was in D.C. before I went to Djibouti, to Africa, um, it was the first time I, I tried to settle down. And in 2014, when I was in Bahrain, I I lost control. I was living, like I said, in this amazing apartment on a private island. I was playing rugby. I was working with the Marines again, you know. So everything looked like I should have been really happy. But I became severely depressed. Um, I came home from work every day and sat in the dark and couldn't figure out what I was doing with my life. And the fact that I was looking... What do you think changed? I mean, you're still doing a lot of the same things that you were when you felt like you had a lot of purpose in Iraq and Afghanistan. But, um, But now it seems like it's a 180. Yeah, a lot of the same thing on the paper. What do you think for you changed? I think it was cumulative trauma. Okay. I had been added for so long since 2001 in in one way or another. First time I went to the Middle East was in 2003. But, you know, I spent a lot of time studying, etc. I think my subconscious had enough. You know, for so long I was able to say... I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm good. Life is good. I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission. I'm changing the world. I'm doing the exact thing that I was born to do. Right? That's what I told myself. And I didn't realize that the whole time it's like a a pitcher or a cup being filled up with dirty water. Right. And I got to a point where my cup was overflowing and not in a good way right you know so but ironically in a literal way right Uh, like you're 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 on a private island you're partying and everything seems to be going good and even even the parts where you feel like you're getting meaning did it feel maybe hollow yeah it felt hollow it felt like nothing could it was like there was something going there was an emptiness and nothing could fill it right and it was terrible um and so i remember sitting in my apartment in the dark after work one day and there was just this voice and it said go home you knew 
I, it wasn't even, you know, yeah, it was like, I just knew. Yeah. And it was so, it was a quiet, but unavoidable voice, you know, just like a week or two before I had told my company that I was going to spend the next six months in Bahrain. And I called him up and I said, I'm coming home. And that was it. And I came home. And when I came home, um, I made these promises to myself. I said, I made three promises. I said, I'm never going back to the Middle East. (laughs) (laughs) Where you've spent basically the last 10 years. Yes. The last decade you've spent in the Middle East. And not here and there. Yes. And not just being there. But everything about who I am is about the Middle East. Even if I'm not there, I'm listening to the Quran like 90% of my waking hours. My time, my energy, the people I talk to, the things I'm doing, it's all about the Middle East. It was all-consuming. And all I could do when I came home, I still wasn't in the right frame of mind to say, you know, slow down a little bit. Yeah. Why don't you just write a few papers or write an article, maybe teach a class here or there, stay involved, but, you know, throttle back a little bit. I, I wasn't even the right frame of mind to do that. I had to make this really definitive, absolute separation. promise, it's separation, but also a promise to myself. And underneath it, it was, I'm more important than everything else. If I'm not healthy, happy, able to live my life, then nothing else matters. And that's a total 180 shift yeah. from, from 2001, where it's, I don't care who I yes, am. Yes, exactly. I'm problem. Exactly. It was a monumental shift that saved my life, ultimately. If I had ignored that voice that said, go home, I still have friend. Honest to God, I have a, I have a, a friend that I'm thinking about right now. But I have friends who are still there, and they've been there from when I was there, from 2003. You know, and I would be dead inside. I mean, if I'm completely honest, I would be dead inside by now. Yeah. You know, so I made I these mean, it's three. A, it's an incredibly demanding job, and it's incredibly. Uh, it's it's more than anyone can really fathom putting on themselves, right? That's that's an, a massive amount of pressure, and then you've been doing it for a decade. Yeah. And, and the most formative years of your life. And exactly. And it wasn't just a job. I mean, I think that was the added pressure. It wasn't just a job. It was who I was. It tied into my self-worth. If I couldn't fix U.S. Middle East policy, then what was I doing? Why was I even living? Right. I mean, that's the sort of fucked up mindset I was in at a certain point in my life. You know, so I made these three promises to myself. Um, I'm never going to the Middle East. I'm going to finish my dissertation and I'm going to settle down. So you hadn't finished your dissertation? At the I, hadn't, I hadn't actually gotten my PhD by that point in time. Oh, that's so uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, you took the break. The, I, yeah. I, I, Yep. Yeah. And so I took my exams, those the brutal exams that you have to take, but I didn't actually write my dissertation. And so when I got back um, to D.C., I mean, it's nothing short of a blessing 
I mean, to be honest, I mean, there's just no other way to think about it, but I was working for this consulting firm and they appreciated the work that I had done and they did everything they could to find me uh, another job in the U.S. I told them I'm not going back to the U.S. I'll work, I'll travel around the you're, U.S. You're I don't going care. Back to the, the Middle East, you're coming back to the, the U.S. Uh, yeah, I was coming back to the U.S. I'll do anything you want, but I'm not going back to the Middle East. So they spent six months and they couldn't find me a job and they still paid me. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So for six months, I went about trying to heal myself. I spent time with my friends. I spent a lot of time at the fire station, but I really spent a lot of time writing my dissertation. That, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, it awesome. was that's, I mean, unbelievable. It was, it was tremendous. Um, it yeah, so took you're me, in DC at this time. I'm in DC. I'm back in DC, the place that at that point in time I would have called home. And this uh, is 2013-ish. It sounds like. Um, when is this? It's not 2013. It's 2014. 2014. I came back from Bahrain in 2014. Okay. And I have all my friends from the fire station. We are extremely close. I can call them and talk about whatever I want. We spend all our time together. We work at the fire station two, three times a week. Um, and so I put forth a lot of effort. You know, one of my favorite stories from my life, but from, from also from my memoir, is the way I navigated getting my dissertation. My advisors didn't want to let me graduate. Really? Yeah. With all that experience, even. What? Exactly. You didn't do it the uh, the the quote unquote right way. Exactly. Okay. That's that's what I think. I didn't do it the right way. You know, all the people who so it was shocking to me. So I started at the University of Chicago in two thousand two. I got my masters in two thousand four. So two thousand four is when I started my PhD work. Okay. I graduated in two thousand fourteen. When I graduated 10 years later, there were three other people who started with me in 2004, and they have not had full-time work in those 10 years. And they still graduated. They graduated with me, but I'd been working full i I'd been in yeah. Iraq and Afghanistan and Djibouti and Bahrain. I've worked in D.C. I've worked in Tampa. At full-time jobs. <laughs> That, I could see that being very frustrating. It was so frustrating. And my advisors did everything they could to sort of get in my way, you know, which is another theme of my book of how I create my own life. Yeah. People are always telling me you have to do A before B and D has to come after C. Right. And I'm like, uh, I'm going to do D. Yeah. So get ready. Everybody who cares, watch me do do D. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, you know, it, 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 on some levels it does make sense, but on most levels it makes absolutely yeah. no sense. That, yeah. yeah. No, you, I know, mean, you have all this experience and you're, you're literally forming U.S. policy and yeah. you can't get the, you know, the achievement that you've been trying to get yeah. for 10 years. And that's insane. And so it turned out to be a bittersweet moment. I was really happy... Um, my dad, who, you know, I didn't grow up with and eventually developed a really important relationship with, 
he was there at my graduation. My best friend was there. And then another one of my best friends was there. So it was a really an amazing experience to go through graduation at the University of Chicago. It's one of the best schools in the world with a PhD, you know, one of the best degrees in the world, studying something which is really difficult, Yeah. right? So walking down the aisle was life-changing. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, this is the culmination of, of yeah. your entire life, yeah. in, in a way. And, you know, yeah, you had yeah. a lot of experience. Of this part of the mission right. of my life, right? right. Um, on the other hand, my advisors had worked so hard against me that I was like, Fuck all you people. I can't wait the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Very disenfranchised. Disenfranchised, right? Uh, yeah. You know, and so when I went back home, you know, after graduating, I, I actually went out to Chicago for the graduation from D.C. When I came back, I was on the airplane, and I was like, okay, I've done two of the three things that I said I would do. Well, I've never been back to the Middle East, which hadn't been that long, but... You know, I was committed to that, right. and I had finished my PhD, and I had to figure out what it meant to settle down. You know, and the first thing that popped into my head was, I need a partner. Yeah. I need, one of the things that's missing from my life is that person next to me who's traveling this crazy, wild world with me. Right. You know, I'd been alone basically my entire life. Been on a mission. Been on a mission. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's an important thing that you said. Obviously, there were moments when I wish I had someone to hold or cry on their shoulder or something like that. But it wasn't mostly that I was alone all that time. It was that I was on a mission, and the mission mattered most. You know, and so when I got back to D.C. after I graduated, I really started trying to find that someone. And it was most unexpected, but that's when I found Jeremy. You know, Jeremy, I was living in D.C. and Jeremy was living in Kansas City. And we met online and it was love at first sight. Yeah. You know, it was like a fairy tale encounter. We both, you know, Jeremy was really successful in his life. He had just recently gotten divorced. I was really successful in my life, and I'd recently, I guess, gotten divorced from the Middle East. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's interesting that you put it that way, though, because it, it was such an important aspect for 10 years of your life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I, without a doubt, I put more effort and energy into the Middle East than any other person yeah. for more than 10 years. Yeah, and so this is like about late 2014, 2015 time. Yeah, this is late 2015. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, I, Jeremy and I spend, not in the grand scheme of things, not as long as most adults probably would have but we spent the time that we needed to figure out whether what we had was real yeah and rather quickly we knew that it was real um and i made the decision to uproot my life yeah. you know to leave dc 
but again, I mean, I think that analogy of divorce is really um, apt, you know, because I was like, I'm leaving all of this, you know, and I had tons of friends at the fire station. I played rugby there. Um, my obviously the Middle East, my community or network there. And I was like, I'm doing something different. I'm embarking on a new mission. Yeah. A new adventure. And to be clear, I mean, you still have all your friends. There's yeah, yeah. friends. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but you were ready to close that chapter in your life. Yeah, I mean, I kept all my friends. I'm really lucky. I mean, I can't say enough how lucky I am to have people who really care about me. You know, all, you know, most of my firefighter friends have come from D.C. to visit in Kansas City. But, yeah, in 2015, I relocated to Kansas City. I started working at Hallmark Reading Cards, which... Everybody who knows me thinks is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a radical shift from, yeah. uh, but but in some ways it, it sort of does make sense the way you've described your mission and the connections and the relationships. I mean, there's no, there's really not a better company, yeah. that's focused around relationships than <laughs> know. you know. Ironically, know. Walmart I, I mean, kind of cheesily, it's yeah, it's all about relationships. And I would have never known, you know, I've always said, you know, since I've moved out here, you know, my new mission is to put me first. And that means really focusing on the relationship that I have with Jeremy, right? And finding a way to create another part of my life. I don't feel like it's a new part. I'm still this person who's motivated by passion, which is boundless and energy, which is always there, you know, drives people crazy, but it's part of who I am. And you're absolutely right that I couldn't have found a better company than Hallmark that's so focused on relationships and everything you do in your daily life is thinking about how to bring that into reality. You know, I always say that, you know, like working at Hallmark is like living inside of a greeting card yeah. you know the people are amazing the environment is great and i had to do so much healing when i left dc when i separated myself from that passion that motivated me for so long and i I don't want to say that I left it behind. Like, I don't want to say that I have any regrets about what I did or I wish I could have done it differently. None of that's true. So I really think about it as moving into something else, bringing all of that that I did and carrying it forward and keeping moving forward. If I had stayed there, I would have become stagnant. I see. You know what I mean? Like, I would have... It's like, oh, well, this is all I can do. This is all I know. This is the life I have to live. But now what I'm doing is I'm bringing all of those experiences into a new life and influencing other people in different ways that I could have never anticipated before. Yeah. You know, so it's been a great um, transition, a new mission in my life. Yeah. So um, I'm just as excited about the work I do now, you know, and I still have an opportunity to read, uh, write and publish and speak about the Middle East less than I used to, but I still stay involved as much as I can. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's perfect. And that's the end of the book. 
That's the end of the book, huh? It ends with Jeremy. It's an amazing love story. You should read the book. You'll love it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, that's a great story.